James chapter 3, it's day 3, how we doing, you okay? Still awake, sandy, tired, sun dipped, looking good. Alright, James chapter 3, uh, we're going to, um, I don't know of actually many chapters in the Bible that spend as many verses, um, probably 12, making almost just one point. Um, and the whole chapter almost just makes one big point. So uh, that's going to mean one of two things. It's going to mean either uh, we go really long because I just start thinking up things to make that one point over and over and over again like James does. Or it's going to be pretty short because it's kind of one thought. And then it's like, so do that. I don't really have anything to say. And then we'll be able to go hang out and have some adult free time again. Like that. Get those kids doing their thing. You guys go off and play chess. Okay. Uh, so James chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Not many of you should become teachers. Great. Perfect. Uh, for me. Anyway. Uh, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there is this sense in the Bible um, that there are people called to be teachers, but not many of you should actually want to become a teacher because that means your life your theology, everything about you is going to be judged very strictly on Judgment Day in front of God. Um, which is why, I mean, to let you guys a bit into my process as a teacher, uh, I began going to church when I was 19, very shortly after that. So people came around me and said, we think you should probably like try to teach and preach. The... Um, the youth pastor at the time said, yeah, why don't you get up and preach a sermon? And I'd literally been to church for like six months, so I had no idea what was going on. Uh, and I was probably too young, actually, and too immature to actually get up and carry any kind of authority in the youth group because, you know, I was a full-time smoker, and I was like, literally, like, I'd stand outside the youth group in the back. I would smoke in the back of the church, and I didn't know at the time there was this big window, uh, and I would smoke in front of the window before church, and then I found out, like, months later that that's where the senior pastor would gather the whole worship team before the, the service, and they would be praying, and they'd, I'd just be sitting there like, you know, whatever, and, uh, and they were like praying for me that I would get saved or something, I don't know. Uh, anyways, and then it was like, hey, get up and preach, so I'm like putting out a cigarette, okay, open up your Bibles, um, and so I was a pretty angry kid, so I preached the most angry chapter in the Bible I could find, Matthew 23, and it was just like 30 verses just ripping into all these religious people, I just screamed at them and told them they were all a joke. Anyways, i calmed down since then. <laughs> Uh, as you can see. So, uh, anyway, so, but my process uh, as a preacher who has to teach the Bible every single week because of this kind of warning from James is I work pretty hard on it um, all day Friday. I kind of, all through the week, I read commentaries on whatever passage I happen to be teaching. And then all day Friday, I kind of write out a manuscript that's about 12 pages long. Uh, and then on Saturday, I say goodbye to my family about 5 p.m., and I go out into my office, and I just get those 12 pages down to about 4 or 5, and then I sit and literally memorize them till about midnight, and then I wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I do the same thing, memorize. So by the time I'm up preaching, it's just kind of Linus blanket, some notes on the side. If things derail, I can go back to something. But mostly I want to try to preach and teach out of what I've studied, but then what's kind of bleeding out of my life. And so... 
that's my process for teaching and preaching because it's such a massive deal. And one of the things the psychologists tell us is if you look back at your life, your first 15 years of your life, other than your parents and your grandparents, probably the most influential, if you look back and think, here's the great moments or here's the great things that have happened in my life, it's probably been teachers. Teachers had a ma have a major impact on all of us in some way, shape, or form, for good or ill. Um, I had a teacher in college that changed my life. I talked a little bit about it last night at Fireside. A guy who took me under his wing. He said, "This is what you should do with your life." I think he should. He made. He, one day, I wrote a paper for John Gospel of John class, and he said, "Hey, next week, I want you to do a one and a half hour lecture." I was 20 years old uh, on the Gospel of John. I think you have original ideas here, and I don't want to steal your ideas as a teacher. So I think you should teach the class. But we'd all written the exact same paper. So I was like, oh my, this, I'm not doing this. I'm not getting up in front of my peers and basically saying, hey, look at me. I know we all wrote the paper, but I did it right. So now I'm going to tell you what's right. I'm not doing that. Thank you very much for the opportunity, whatever. And he said, no, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you next week you're on for an hour and a half long lecture. See you next week. And he walked away from me. And so I had to get up as a 20-year-old, like shaking. And I'm like, hello, class. And I had to teach the lecture through John for an hour and a half. And that is what catapulted me into what he got me to do, be, becoming a teaching assistant and, and doing three-hour lectures at the school. It was him pouring into me. Many of us have had teachers in our lives. I was about to get expelled from college because my buddy copied a paper of mine. And then somehow, and I didn't know he was going to copy it. This was like third, fourth year of college. Uh, his name, uh, I'll say his name was Shant. Um, and uh, and, and uh, Shant took a paper of mine and said, hey, uh, I'm really in a tight spot, just let me read your paper for inspiration. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I gave him uh, the, the paper, and he didn't tell me this, but he copied it word for word and handed it in. But then, three weeks later, the Holy Spirit convicted him, all right, and then he had to go up, and, t and he went up and told the teacher. He's like, hey, by the way, I cheated word for word. And they said, okay, and they had a, and, and Sean said, listen, uh, I'll never rat you out no matter what. And they had a tribunal, and they pulled together six teachers and professors and the, the president of the university, and they came and they got together and they said, don't worry about it, you're totally safe, they're just going to get me in trouble. And they got together and they said, who gave you this paper? And they just started going after him. And he said, Mark, I'll never, I'll never tell anybody who gave, it doesn't matter what they do to me. They could, you know, they torture me. I'll never tell them your name. And I'm like, okay, okay, fine. So he gets in front of this tribunal and they go at him for half an hour. And uh, finally he just says, uh, I'll never tell you who he is. And they said, so we know it's a guy. How long is it going to take for us to figure out who the guy in last week, uh, last semester's class is that hangs around you? Tell me his name. Tell me his name. And then he just hung his head low and he said, Mark Clark. And they all left the tribunal. And I was going to get expelled. And, uh, and the reality is I never heard from them. And the reason I never heard from them, I found out later, is because this teacher who asked me to be his TA, his name is Steve Thompson, um, went in front of them and said, if you contact him, I'm going to create trouble for you because you are, not, you are not living out the gospel in this moment. He was their most prized teacher. And he said, I will create trouble for you if you go at Mark. And he stood in place for me uh, so I wouldn't get expelled. So a lot of us have had great impact in our life by different teachers in our life. But let me just apply it even further. We're all teachers in some way. You guys are teaching the people around you, influencing the people around you every single day, whether it be your kids, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers. You're all teaching at some moment. And so there's a massive uh, frame on you to say, what kind of teacher are you? In the Great Commission, your job is to make disciples, to make learners in every way, shape, form. If you're talking about sex or money or God or faith or whatever it is, you are teachers. And there's an expectation on you to be good teachers, to live a life because God's going to look at you and judge you based on your life, your whole life lived and what you actually taught people by your life. And so, 
He says, uh, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect. So this is what he's going to hone in on now of what we say. Um, uh, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his a whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So he's going to try to talk about um, your words and how powerful your words are to destroy or make life. That's the massive point of this text. And he makes it in a few different ways. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body. So you have this little thing called a bit. You stick it into a massive horse. And all you need to do is a little thing like the tongue and the power it has to manipulate and control. And so he says, imagine this massive big Stetson horse and you stick a tiny little bit in its mouth and it can direct everything it does. Now think about what your tongue, your words, what you say actually do to the world around you. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. I remember when I was at camp as a kid, we used to do sailboats, and we'd have that little rudder behind, it was this big, and it would control the whole boat. Left, right, that would control where it went. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And so your tongue literally is going to boast of great things. It's going to define so much of life for you one way or the other. Then he says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we're in Kelowna. We see fires all the time. Usually started by a tiny little spark. So he says, a whole fire can be set, a whole a forest set ablaze by a tiny little spark. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Saying, think about how you talk. Jesus has this crazy, I remember as a new Christian, I'm just going to flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 12. When I was a brand new Christian, I was reading through the gospel of Matthew and I came to this crazy verse and we never preach this verse and we never reflect on this verse because it's so nuts. It actually sounds like heresy. All right. When you read it, Jesus says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, listen to me, listen to this text. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. That's Jesus. We don't talk about that in church. We talk about on judgment day, you're going to be justified by faith. You're going to be justified by your beliefs. You're going to be justified believing that Jesus Christ was God and he, he died on the cross and he rose again. We don't talk about the fact that your words are going to be held against you. Now think about how you talk in your life. Here is the poison that he's talking about. You know what your temptation is? Because it's mine to talk negatively about people. Because in that moment, who begins to feel really good about themselves? We do. So the minute you start to cut on someone, gossip about someone, talk negatively about someone, you start to look good. And that feeling is addictive. And so he's saying your words are going to define your eternity. Think about that. When you leave this building, you have an option to create life or to create death, to burn a fire down or to build people up. 
Encourage or destroy. Think about the way you talk to your spouse. How do you speak to them? Does it build up? Does it, does it create life or destroy life? Right? Um, a guy named Greg Chapman wrote a book. You probably all read it or heard about it. The Five Love Languages. Right? Where one of the love languages that we have as human beings out of the five is words of affirmation. That that literally, that's, my, that's one of my love languages. All right? So here's the, word, the, the love languages, of course, there's like gifts and words of affirmation and physical touch and quality time and so on. Uh, acts of service. So my wife's, one of her love languages is acts of service. Right? Like if I vacuum, all right, that like feeds her soul. All right? She's like, oh, thank goodness you're actually doing something. Because for her, in some ways, as a lot of women, words are cheap. Right? Like a guy can bang. It's like, yeah, great. Live it out, bro. Your words, you're very wordy. I'm very wordy. I can word it, word it all day. All right? She's like, great. Vacuum something. Show me you love me. All right? Now, my love language, like, like some people's love language, whose love language in here is gifts? Like when you get a gift from your husband or somebody, it's okay, it's not shallow. Yeah, okay. Uh, right, when you get a gift from somebody, you're like, oh, my soul is filled. I just feel like, oh my goodness. They brought me flowers or they bought me movie tickets or they bought me a boat, you know, whatever. And it's like, oh my gosh, like they bought me a Porsche, like my life, like I just feel like that's a lot of you get fed. That's where your tank gets filled. You're like, now for me, I don't care about gifts at all. Like literally, you could buy me, you could buy me a Mustang, whatever you want to buy, whatever you want to think. I would, it would barely register. I'd be like, oh, cool, thanks, and then a day or two later, I'd forget. Um, just doesn't register with me, right? People buy me stuff. I'm just like, I don't really need stuff. Like I went, like I got too much stuff already. You don't need to buy me things. But words of affirmation, that's my love language. So you want to know how to get, you know, get to me? It's like, tell me I'm great. Just tell me I'm great. Thanks, buddy. Right over here. Tell me I'm great, man. And I will soar. If, my, if Aaron walks up to me, she's like, oh, you're looking hot today, bro. And just like squeezes. Like, and there is a pop. I have to buy the boys mediums to get the pop. But um, if she like squeezes my muscle, she's like, oh, man, you're looking hot. Like you just, sesame, you just, then I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm soaring for a month, right? Like, it's like, that's. That matters to me. It's words of affirmation. But gifts don't even register to me. Quality time registers to me. Her, her thing is acts of service. And it's like, don't just yap. You do something in our life. Um, and so for, for words are very powerful things that can make people soar or destroy them. And so often in our life, we use our words to destroy people, sometimes behind their back. And the question of this text is the people of God are actually called to, to, to set positive fires ablaze in the world rather than destroy forests. Forests of people's souls and lives and minds. And the question of the text is, what kind of person are you going to be? You're going to be judged by your words and what you say. How you build up. How you destroy. Are you going to be someone who says to themselves, my life is going to be defined by positive words? You know what it's like to get a word of encouragement. I think encouragement is one of the things that's most neglected in the church. And if we want to actually stand out as people, be the kind of people who encourage in a world where nobody's getting encouraged. And if you want to know, if you want to be depressed in life and see how dark it is, just go on Twitter. Scroll through Twitter for about half an hour. You'll be very depressed in life. And then you begin to go, how can I use words in almost the exact opposite form that Twitter uses words to actually destroy people? And so... He says, for every kind of beast and bird, they've all been tamed. And then he says this, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it, we bless our Lord, verse 9, and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That, he's talking about with it with your tongue. You, with the same tongue, you come in this room and you sing songs about the Father and His goodness and Jesus, and then you walk out of this room and you say, that person's ugly. That person's a loser. That person doesn't know how to do anything. That person's a disaster. With the same thing, with the same tongue, you say great things and you destroy people. He's saying, what kind of hi hypocrisy do you live in? What kind of hypocrite are you? You can't actually live like this. And so he starts giving analogies about why it's actually a contradiction to be these kinds of people. He says, verse uh, 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The reality is, is you can't have this, you can't, if you have a salt water, it's not gonna give you fresh water. You are either one of these people, you can't be both at the same time. That's his point. So make your choice because words are gonna be powerful. So much so, people come up to me all the time and they say, you changed, like let me give you examples from my own life about positive and negative words and the power that they have. People come up to me often because they listen to like my sermon podcast, for instance. I got a message today about how it changed the direction of their life. They drive into uh, work every day and they listen to my sermons. I don't know how they listen to my voice um, that much because it's not, you know, it's not an Anthony Hopkins soothing kind of, you know, voice. It's kind of whiny. Anyways, um, and so they talk about, oh my goodness, it's changed my life listening to this, listen to this. And there's, there's beautiful, um, I spoke at a, I'll just give you one, uh, one spot where my words, the same exact words, did two separate things. I was asked to speak at a uh, conference in Toronto uh, for the Gospel Coalition, and I went and I spoke for an hour. And uh, during that sermon, I didn't realize it, but what I said offended a bunch of, you know, some people, not, not many, there was like two. Um, and so there was two people who were totally offended, but they were very powerful people, uh, to the point where they actually wouldn't put my sermon on their website so that people, every other sermon that was preached during the conference, people could download and listen to it. But then you saw mine and you couldn't listen to it. It was like up there. And then two days later, they just deleted the whole thing. It wasn't even up there. So it was like it never happened. Partly because the two speakers before me had gotten up and done these one hour really boring lectures where they were literally like getting into like Hebrew participles and and everyone was falling asleep and there was 500 pastors there. And uh, I drove in and I got up and I said, listen, when I drove in today, that bus stop was just full of people who are dying and going to hell and we're in here parsing Hebrew verbs, wasting everybody's time. Do not do that with your life as a pastor. Now, a couple people got offended by that and they took the thing down, but that same sermon had a lineup of people walking up to me and saying, everything you just said changed my life. And to the point where there was a guy who walked up to me, he said, I was walking by this church where the conference was, and I, ha I wrote a resignation paper yesterday. He said, I was walking by, I had no idea what this church was. He said, I came in the door and I heard you yelling in the room and I know what was happening. And he goes, so I went and I took a name tag off of the board. He goes, this isn't even my name. 
And he goes, everything you just said changed my life to the point where I'm deleting the resignation letter because you told me, even though I'm a very unique person, I still have a place in pastoral ministry. God can still use me, even though I'm not perfect, to do something. This, my best friend walked up to me, who'd been my best friend about 15, 20 years ago, and he walked up to me crying. And he said, to be honest, Mark, um, I have to confess something to you. I've actually been praying for your fall as a leader because I've been jealous of you for 15 or 20 years, and I'm repenting in front of you right now. That those two same things happen in the same room. And so that's how powerful words are. They can create life or destroy life. And the question is, how do you make sure that you guard your words? Because in the end, God's going to look at you and say, I'm going to judge you for your words. How often our words have been used to destroy or pull down. I can, I can take a room of 500 people, pastors, and encourage them to go out and die for the gospel at the same time. As you well know, as I've told this story many times, I can look at a woman and tell her her husband was dead. And actually he wasn't. And I made a mistake and I had the wrong guy. And she literally passed out in my arms and then we mourned for 45 minutes and then I realized I had the wrong guy, which you shouldn't do in pastoral ministry. <laughs> Think about the power of those words. Your husband is dead. He wasn't. But think about how that, those words, your husband is dead. Four words. Destroyed a heart. Four words can direct your life one way or the other. That's what he's saying. And every day you live, you have that opportunity to go, am I going to build up forests? Am I going to destroy them? And so he says, how could it be that you curse people and praise God from the same mouth? It can't be. You have to choose one or the other. And here's the thing about that. If you're going to be the kind of person that chooses to build people up, rather than destroy them. Let me be really practical with you for a minute. It will cost you something. Because you will have to not look good sometimes. You will not be able to defend yourself sometimes. You're going to have to let the loser be a loser. You're going to have to let the incompetent in that moment be a little incompetent so you can't destroy them and strip them down. In those moments, it's going to cost you something. I guarantee it. To be someone who is exclusively positive is going to cost you something. You're going to look dumb, naive, uncritical. That's the reality. It's going to cost you something. Like anything hard in life is going to cost you. Everybody here, when we had kids, right? The decision to have children for us, it was like, like I said yesterday, you're basically saying my life is over for 20 years, right? All the money, all the time, all the energy to do this right, it's going to cost me what I want to do. Because what I want to do, to be honest with you guys, is play golf four days a week. That's what I want to do. But I don't get to. I only get to play three days a week because I have kids. There's a cost to this. Just kidding. I really don't. Once or twice. Okay. Uh, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? That, that's a key word. Underline that. Wise. Because he's about to define two kinds of wisdom. By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's what I'm talking about. If you decide to be somebody who doesn't tear people down, you're going to look meek. But there's a wisdom in the kind of meekness. But if you have bitter jealousy, there's two kinds of wisdom. Here's the first one. If you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil every vile practice. So the first kind of wisdom is worldly wisdom. It's a kind of wisdom you and I naturally do, which is selfish ambition. It's all about you. It's all about your ego. It's all about how you can look good, how you can get ahead. And you use your words thinking you're so wise and so smart to look a certain way in a social setting, to be about reputation, to do whatever you need to do for you. And in that moment, it's selfish ambition. So every time you talk today, Recognize this, your natural state is every word you say is somehow hearkening back to your narcissism to make you look good because the most powerful thing in your life is the idea of your own delight and your own pleasure, right? That's the reason you make every decision you make. It's the reason you married who you married. It's the reason you're going to sit where you sit here today. It's the reason you're going to choose your spot on the beach. It's the reason you're going to choose your activities this afternoon. It's your own pleasure and delight. That's what drives you. That's the most powerful thing about you is your gut, right? What makes you feel good. It's not your reason. Your gut is far more powerful than your reason. And I'll give you an example. And this is what Augustine said uh, many years ago. He said, we're all trying to get at each other's rationale and reason all the time. But if you want to actually understand what drives your life, it's what makes you feel good. It's not what's rational. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know how many of you like don't, you're not massive fans of flying in airplanes, right? Yeah, there's a few of us. Okay. The rest of you, most of some of you like. So I'm I'm not a huge fan of airplanes. I go in them all the time, but I don't tend to like them. And so, but here's the statistics. If I, uh, if I show up to the airport, I've dodged the problem, right? I'm far more statistically going to die in a car crash on the way to the airport than I am on an airplane. And so if I just get to the airplane, I'm in the safest place on the planet pretty well, right? We know that statistically. We know that logically. But the reality is my gut tells me something different because I'm driven by my feelings, not my logic. Feelings are far more powerful than logic and rationale, and they make you go a certain direction in life. And what he's saying is, do not let your words be defined by what's gonna make you feel good in one moment or the other, because as uh, one philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard talked about, he said, that's the ultimate slavery. See, our culture lives in such a way that says, here's what needs to define the decisions you make in your life. What makes you feel good? You do you. And if it makes you feel a particular way, you go out and make that decision. You do this, you do this, you do this, all based on your feeling. And Soren Kierkegaard said, do you know? And they actually say that that's the ultimate freedom. That's the definition of freedom from our culture, right? Definition of freedom is don't let anybody tell you what to do. Go out and do what you feel. And Kierkegaard said that actually is the ultimate slavery because what are you now enslaved to? Your feelings. And you're not even a thinking creature anymore. You can't even think your way out of it. You're just going by your gut. And so what James says is be very careful to not use your words driven only by what gives you delight and what makes you feel good because in those moments you're going to tear everybody down and it's going to be about your selfish ambition and your ego and your pride. So he says that's the first kind of wisdom and it's earthly and it's demonic. And then he says there's a second kind of wisdom though. And I'll leave you with this. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above, listen to these description words. I think there's six of them. Wisdom from above is first pure. Just reflect on that word, pure. It's pure, it's pure, it's pure. It's undefiled by nonsense and sin. Then peaceable. 
you're somebody that creates peace. Are you a peacemaker or are you a divider? Do you like to see people divide in your church, in your social settings? Do you thrive on the division and the conflict and the drama of people? Or do you, are you someone who goes, how can I in this moment create peace? I hear two people are fighting. Instead of stirring it up, I want to use my words to create peace. Imagine we were all like that, right? Church meetings would be far more boring because you wouldn't be getting up creating nonsense over nothing. And churches wouldn't be divided because they would be driven by the whole paradigm of peace. Gentle. That one's tough. I'm not naturally a gentle person. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a bit like I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop. And so gentle is like, God, please make me gentle because I'm not naturally gentle. Right. My I'm raising three daughters. And I think all of that is about my own sanctification, because I think I was supposed to have a boy that I could just say, shut up. That's dumb. Right. But I say that to girls and it's like, I don't don't I don't say that because they're my princesses. I say, quiet. And I suggest things to them that they should do in life because <clears throat> I can't have words that are like, like, but I, but I sometimes fumble it. I'm like, like, and, and now my kids are getting to the age where it's like starting to, you know, like my oldest one, it's like, Hey, did you brush your teeth? She's like, you think my breath stinks? And it's like, what? I just asked you to brush your teeth. What are you talking about right now? And it goes into her soul and her whole identity is ruined. So, um, so gentle's tough for me, actually. I'm not like naturally gentle. I'm naturally like, let's go. Let's do, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but gentle is fascinating because wisdom that is gentle is the godly kind of wisdom versus wisdom that is rough because a gentle kind of wisdom has to die to itself, right? And that's what he's saying. You have to be willing to take the hits and like Jesus, just absorb it as a seed goes into the ground and dies. That's the only way life can come out of it. And in those moments, it's going to be tough because you can't just become an animal. Open to reason that you would actually, how often have you gotten into fights with people and you sit there and you go, they're not even being rational right now. There's no reason happening. They're so, they're so just tainted by their anger. I don't want to be the kind of person who defines my words like that. I want to be the kind of person who's seen as rational, open to reason. Use your words in a reasonable way, in a rational way, because if you don't, your credibility will go down over time. Listen, I got a buddy, and I'm not, don't let me judge you, I'm just telling you what I feel, okay? So my buddy is one of these conspiracy guys, meaning he thinks, now, there's people who are like, 9-11 was an inside job. And it's like, you kind of go, oh, this is an interesting conversation over lunch. And you kind of laugh to yourself and, you know, whatever. And then you move on. And you're fine. You know, they haven't really lost credibility. Well, kind of, but, you know, a little bit. And then, and, but then he goes, but then also Sandy Hook wasn't real. Then that person on this wasn't real. Then, then he starts going, uh, the, 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 the trails that the airplanes leave behind, those are chemtrails, and they're designed by the government to control the weather. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're a crazy person, okay? What are you talking about right now? And you realize he actually just believes in every conspiracy. He doesn't just believe like in one or two, because then you'd be like, oh, you're a nuanced thinker. He just says everything that happens is one big conspiracy and there's like no ability for him to like get out and discern out which ones might. So in that moment, when you meet somebody like that, you just start to write them off because they're not even open to reason. 
they just believe everything is this and there's no nuance and you begin to lose legitimacy with them. If the church functions like that in the world, we start to get the world to look at us and go, you're not even, you're not even wise. And the witness actually gets corroded. And so he says, you want to know what wisdom from above is? It's open to reason. It's open to correction. And then he says, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, which is fascinating, impartial. You don't get to choose sides. You're doing your best to say, God, what in this moment, even if it's my best friend that I need to disagree with in a moment or something, what if, what if I'm in a moment where there's some kind of conflict, how do I be impartial and hear from you about what is right and wrong? And then he says, and sincere. You're constantly evaluating your own heart and going, am I being sincere in this moment when I speak or not? And then he ends it by verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I'll say this, this whole description looks like someone who would be weak, but the reality is this is the definition of strength. Think of Jesus, the one who actually went to the cross. Think, the, the beauty of the New Testament is it's like, do you know how powerful this guy was? He could have at any moment called down this, called down that. He could have fought for his rights. I mean, he's standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate's like, you're not going to defend yourself, bro? What's going on? He could have, the Bible tells you what he could have done. Legions of angels. He could have lit him on fire. He could have been like, yeah, Pilate. <laughs> Blowing up everybody. Everyone goes on fire. Everyone gets leprosy, and he starts. He could have done crazy stuff. But he chose to remain silent. Absorb the evil. Take it and die and go into the ground. And that become, that cruciform pattern becomes the, the example of what you and I have to do. Sometimes you gotta take it and just, just go, I'm gonna absorb, absorb it for the sake of the wisdom and the witness of the church because this is when I look most like Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would understand the power of our words, the power of the tongue, the fact that it can it can literally destroy the lives of people like that. Or it can build up. I pray that we would be the kinds of people who, who say to ourselves, we're actually going to take our time and our energy and our words to go out of our way to build up, to write notes to people that need them, to, to Facebook message people that need encouragement, to text people. In mo we're going to be intentional to actually be people who build up and build up and build up because we have no idea what's going on in people's lives behind closed doors. Every single person in this room needs encouragement. Every single person in this room feels torn down by people around them every day, whether it be their spouse, their kids, their coworkers, themselves. We speak nonsense to ourselves every day. And I just pray in the name of Jesus, we would hear not our own destructive voices about our looks, or our accomplishments, or our reputation, or our social status, or what we are, or what we aren't as we compare ourselves to other people. That all that stuff would go away, and we would hear the words of the Father, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. This is your identity. Now go out and do mission. And we look at when you declared that down on Jesus at his baptism, and he hadn't even done anything yet. And it empowered him to actually do mission in a powerful way under you. And I pray that would be true for every single one of us in this room. That that declaration, that voice, those words would build up to the point to give us courage to even die for this thing. 
to hear from you what you're calling us to do. And that any destructive words that have torn us down up until this moment, up until this day, up until it's us sitting in this seat right now, that we would understand that the cross of Jesus washes those away and makes us clean and we can start over. That the beauty of the cross is it not only saves us from the sin that we have done, but the sins that have been done to us. The words that have torn down. I pray that we would hear your words to replace them. And we would be the kinds of people who decide as we walk out of here to be people who build up rather than burn forests down. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you have uh, 20 minutes to hang out and uh, enjoy your time and then pick up your kids at 12.30 and there's lunch. <laughs> Thank you.